Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for one. This is the final word. It's Jeff Lemon. It's Adam Collins. Uh, we're coming to you from around the world to talk about cricket around the world. On the agenda today, the World Cup final from the MCG for the T20 World Cup for the women. Uh, what a night it was, and we will talk about that at some length. Um, we've got a brief word from a couple of the Australian world champions. Megan Shute and Beth Mooney both spoke to me briefly after the game, uh, still in the flush of victory. We're coming back with a new episode episode of Statman on today's show. Be up, 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 bomb. Nerd Pledge will be back. Of course, the lightning round with the Sheffield Shield. Australia coming back from South Africa. New Zealand's coming over. England in Sri Lanka and all of the other cricket bits and pieces around the world. In brief, the Seabus Performer of the Week will be named. Uh, but Adam, that that day, that night, 86,174, I think it was, at the McGee, uh, the director of Charlie's Angels and now a ground where you know so many... Uh, so many people gathered to watch women's cricket in in a way that we didn't really imagine would be possible even a couple of years ago. Yeah, g'day, Jeff. Um, yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of indulgent to, to put it in these terms off the top because we'll talk properly about the, the event and the game, but it was sad not to be there from my perspective because, you know, I feel like over the last five or six years we've been at kind of everything. 
women's cricket, whether it's World Cups or Ashes Series or Bilateral Series or the BBL, KSL. We've been everywhere and um, I'm glad you got to really indulge in, in that uh, wonderful event the other night. But I was watching it from, yeah, 10,000 miles away, covering it for The Guardian and Women's Cricket Zone and doing my thing. But uh, yeah, it was the one moment, I suppose, uh, since I've been back in the UK where I thought, gee, I really, really wish I was at home. So mm. um, it was just an incredible thing to watch. It was quite emotional, actually, watching the uh, Katy Perry stuff. Not that I would normally you know, care much either way, but just kind of the whole, uh, maybe it's kind of a combination of having uh, been heavily involved in, in pushing the women's cricket cause in years gone by and also uh, having had a daughter recently. I, I wondered wh- how that intersects and you see that huge International Women's Day um, presentation beforehand and so forth and yeah, it was it was, it was very special and um, I'm glad uh, you were there to yeah, enjoy it in full and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, it felt like in a way like the handover was done you know there were so many times where you needed to be there because there was so little coverage whereas at mm. that game you know everybody was there the the heavy hitters were in the all of the outlets were covering it and um, it was it was nice in a way that it wasn't necessary for you to have to make the trip yeah that's right i mean alex brown um, from cricket australia was on twitter it was the end of the beginning and i really that felt true uh, that felt accurate that this sort of ramp up over the last five years which we've been part of a lot of people have been part of um, now this saturation coverage through the last few weeks the, the previous world cup final in the west indies a year and a half ago i was one of oh, i don't know maybe eight people covering it i mean any of mm. that's probably been generous uh in terms of people who'd flown in uh, two know, of them were chairs. <laughs> you can count them on one hand in terms of those who had flown in for the event who, who weren't there for broadcast reasons. That is, those who were there writing about it. So, uh, yeah, huge shift in uh, the way this is being interpreted and really drowning out the negativity. There was always going to be some negativity around a Women's World Cup. We've learnt that over the last handful of years. But when Mitchell Stark announced that he was going to fly home and, and be there with his wife, Elisa Healy, which would mean that he'd miss a game himself, that... Um, third one day in, in South Africa. I, I expected the backlash to be far more considerable and said something to that effect on Twitter that we should just ignore the, the usual reply guys and, you know, who, who get very cross um, and, and like to be very cross on, on Twitter accordingly. But I, I didn't sort of sense that. I thought that it would be far more full on. I think it was kind of almost... But I'm not saying it was a universal acceptance, but a broad acceptance that this is, of course, the thing he would do. Why wouldn't mm. Mitchell Stark fly home for such a momentous uh, evening in his, in his wife's life and career? Uh, so, yeah, maybe that's a, a sense. Well, that's not maybe. It's definitely, for mine, a, a, a reflection on, on where this is trending. Well, it's interesting that you say it was the beginning of the the end of the beginning, a, a Churchill line. This is not mm. the end. It is not <laughs> even the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the, the end beginning. beginning. And in perfect segue, terms that fits in with Daniel Norcross's update of the British winter as interpreted as World War II across six months versus six years and he's been kind enough to record us his update for this week on where we are in the northern hemisphere's cold times. Welcome to World War II update from Pate News on the final word. At the time of recording, we've made it to noon on the 19th of December, 1944. And whilst the end is hoving ever closer into view, the weather is awful and the situation on the ground is grim and intense, with hand-to-hand fighting breaking out all over the various theatres of war. Think of it much like a trip to your local supermarket for loo roll and hand sanitizer, having to cross New Road, Worcester in a dinghy, but without a stash of hand grenades. 
In the last few days, Himmler has ordered the destruction of Auschwitz to hide atrocities from the advancing Soviets. The Americans have bombed Tokyo using B-52s. The Germans have obliterated the new cross branch of Woolworths in London. Not before time. The pick-and-mix section have been shorn of chocolate raisins and honeycomb clusters for four years. And the Japanese have been stepping up kamikaze attacks on Allied ships in the Pacific. While most countries are devoting their energies to picking sides either for or against fascism, at around 11pm on Sunday night, unchecked fighting between communist and anti-communist factions in Greece led to civil war breaking out, rather unhelpfully in my view. At the same time, George VI officially disbanded the Home Guard, suddenly and brutally cancelling the nation's favourite sitcom and bringing to an end the acting career of Arnold Ridley and the bloke who played Private Sponge. Arthur Lowe would resurface in the first and best series of Potter before his untimely death at the age of 66 in 1982. His replacement as Potter, Robin Bailey, although an excellent actor in his own right, was completely miscast and the show was axed a year later. But I digress. Yesterday, at 9am, the US launched their assault on Iwo Jima. The campaign was to last two months and inflict atrocious American pronunciation of all Pacific Island place names on unwitting filmgoers well into the 21st century. In feats of extraordinary engineering news, yesterday at 1pm, the Allies completed construction of the world's longest bridge, 1,154 feet spanning the Chindwin River in Burma, putting Boris Johnson's failed six-year project to construct a London Garden Bridge into perspective for generations to come. At midnight last night, band leader and in-the-mood megastar Glenn Miller disappeared after taking off from England in foul weather. We've all done it. At 2pm today, surrounded with his 101st Airborne Division in the Battle of the Bulge, Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe receives a surrender ultimatum from the Germans to which he delivers his immortal reply. Nuts. In later years, he would suggest that his actual reply was a stronger four-letter word. At 9pm, US tanks break through the German line and end the Bastogne siege as well as the Ardennes offensive. Though they initially had been victorious locally, German forces are greatly depleted. Tomorrow, at 3am, Hungary declares war on its former ally, Nazi Germany, as Soviet Union tanks roll in and urban warfare engulfs the city of Budapest. And tomorrow, at 7am, the Battle of Leyte ends with the Allies losing 3,500 men out of a 200,000-man force. The Japanese would lose 49,000 out of a force of 55,000. Emperor Hirohito was reported to be more than usually miffed when hearing the news and in a display of terribly poor form, petulantly overturned a mahjong board in the middle of a game he was having and losing with Empress Kojun, who taunted him with the refrain, You only sing when you're winning. Don't expect to hear that singing voice any time soon, Kojun's old girl. And so we move, less than serenely, into 1945, which kicks off at 8am tomorrow with the Soviet Union puppet Lublin Committee assuming control of portions of Poland liberated by the Red Army. The Luftwaffe launches a significant attack on Allied bases in France, Belgium and the Netherlands, but loses nearly half of its 800-strong air fleet. At noon tomorrow, quite late in the day if you ask me, Canada sends its first group of 13,000 draftees to war in Europe. But many of them throw their rifles overboard in protest. 
The volatile Quebecois are thought to be largely responsible after a dispute over the precise cheese content of the army-issue croque-messieurs. At 4pm, despite opposition from British and American authorities, Poland's Lublin government is recognised by the Soviet Union, paving the way for 45 years of puppet government. At 8am on Thursday, the Red Army will stage a massive assault against Nazi Germany along the Eastern Front, sending more than a million troops to face a German force that is a fraction of that size. At 10am on Thursday, commercial shipping will resume in the English Channel for the first time in nearly five years, and excited holidaymakers will look to cash in on duty-free booze cruises to Calais and Dunkirk once more. At noon on Thursday, Hitler moves both his residence and base of operations to the underground bunker at Berlin's Reich Chancellery. As pre-production of Downfall gets into full swing, at one stroke, inspiring the world's greatest and most enduring meme. At 2 p.m. on Thursday, the Red Army will liberate the Polish capital of Warsaw. At 6 p.m., the Germans will retreat before the Red Army's advance through Poland. At 8 p.m., President Roosevelt will unwittingly lay the groundwork for Donald Trump's perpetual dictatorship of the free world when he is sworn in for an unprecedented fourth term in office. And at 8 a.m. on Friday, the Soviet Union army will liberate what is left of Auschwitz. At 10 a.m. on Friday, the Japanese will lose about 100 planes in U.S. counterattacks on Japanese air bases in Okinawa. At 2 p.m. on the same day, the Battle of the Bulge will draw to a close as the last German soldiers are forced into retreat, and for the first time in nearly three years, supplies will reach China over the Burma Road. And finally, at 10 p.m., with the Red Army less than 100 miles from Berlin, a defiant and delusional Bruno Gantz will deliver his final radio address in the style of Adolf Hitler. As self-isolation grips northern Italians in 2020, tune in next week to hear how their Nazi occupiers were still living it up, unhindered on the shores of Lake Como. Witness allied panic that the Red Army will get to Berlin first, and all the grisly details of Japanese resistance in the Far East. It's the last week before VE Day, so stock up on tin soup, powdered egg and condensed milk and prepare yourself for spontaneous, drunken but ill-considered sex with a soon-to-be-departing American GI. You can just see how much Dan enjoyed uh, recording it in that fashion. Nazi Germany and, and the, you know, Hirohito uh, uh, launching into a, a rendition of, well, not Hirohito, his, his chess partner. You only sing when you're winning the Netherlands and so forth. It's, uh, it's the role Dan Norcross was born to play, I think, over the last few weeks. And I guess we've got a, a few more to go, Jeff. That's right, chaps. <laughs> British maritime craft have flocked to the service of the military to evacuate our boys from Dunkirk. He's, uh, he's definitely enjoying himself, and, and that's good that we've given him something to do over the winter. Otherwise, who knows, he'd be digging holes in the back garden or something. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also good to know that we're all going to be getting jiggy with an American GI over the next week, so, you know, something mm. to look forward to. Joe, release me from your kung fu grip. Uh, <laughs> now, you mentioned before Mitchell Stark coming back to watch Elisa Healy play. He'd be bloody glad he did because night of her life, I know we talked about this before the tournament coming in of people saying, oh, Healy's had a few low scores, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, was, I had no concerns about her whatsoever because I thought she's just such a pugnacious temperament. She'll just keep blasting away and, and eventually the runs will start to come. And that's exactly what happened. But you talk about big game players. Uh, imagine walking out there, 86,000. Now, the, you know the MCG when it's full and it felt 
helpful. It, it was one of those cases where there were some some seats at the very top of the upper deck, but the first three tiers were full and, and you know mm. you're on for an 80-plus crowd. And to walk out in front of that and go for the ball immediately, get dropped, tough chance at cover in the first over, and then just completely go to town, like not not back down at all, but just go the other way and, and just, just take the attack to them. She basically won the game within about eight overs. They were... Running at 10 and over. So by the time Australia's none for 80, you think, well, even if they collapse here, they're getting 130, 140 on the board. That's going to be enough. And they pretty much won the game already. Yeah, the G has different modes in, in terms of how it feels. And Jeff, you, you touched on one of those in, in your piece for the ABC about how it feels when it's empty or, or relatively empty echo, echoes and, and every noise from the ground is amplified around the amphitheatre. Echoes, echoes, um, echoes. <laughs> And then there's the sort of, you know, 30 or 40,000 feel, which we're pretty familiar with, like a, a lot of space, a lot of spare seats, but I'm still, uh, it, it, it can feel um, loud but half empty even when there's 55, 60, mm. 70,000 even, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's, when it's above 80, 85, it, it has a different, it's a different feeling altogether mm. and it's so loud and it's so daunting uh, for those who aren't necessarily experienced in that and that's perhaps one uh, point leading in I was curious about it. Oh, you know all the expectations leading into the tournament uh, the tough way Australia got to the final which we'll touch on later uh, how will they handle it when they walk into something they've never walked into before and Elisa Healy was the best possible person um, mm. to be charged with that Responsibility. It was a stroke of genius from Meg Lanning to bat first upon winning the toss. Remember, of course, Lanning fielded first against India uh, in the first game of the group stage, fielded against Sri Lanka as well when she won the toss. I think she batted against Bangladesh when they needed to build some confidence in their batting, but it was definitely the right thing to do to bat against India because suddenly the pressure was transferred mm-hmm. onto Deepthi Sharma. The, so the, 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 you know, Healy, who is supremely confident, um, facing uh, a spinner in the first over, three full tosses. Two of them, I think, were put away. Three boundaries, all told. Admittedly, she was dropped at cover um, by Shafali Verma, which we shouldn't um, wash over. But really, that kind of shows it, doesn't it? That the drop catch plus the three full tosses it immediately felt like Australia had settled through Healy, mm. and then she was able to set the agenda for everyone else that came after her with the bat and then with the ball later on. Whereas India were immediately rattled, which again you see coming back to the, the nature of the MCG and its life cycle, you occasionally mm. see teams uh, completely overawed. Uh, by the occasion there and that's how it felt to me with India yeah and it was so immediate so sometimes if you see a player dropped you then see them either go completely wild afterwards or they go into their shell and with Healy she just doesn't notice she just shrugs it off when she when it gets given a chance because it, it's like she she just forgets about it immediately so the fifth ball of the over she was dropped the sixth one she drives along the ground through cover the same direction for four so th- there's no there's no loss of composure there and then keeps going after that so I think Mooney's first boundary wasn't till the fourth over Healy was 28 or 14 by that point so she's going at a strike rate of 200 through the early stages and that's before she'd even started hitting sixes then she goes two in a row off um, Radiyadav I think it was uh, the, the left arm spinner and then she goes three in a row off Shikapandi who doesn't get hit for six very often she's a pretty accurate seamer and it's hard to get the leverage but Healy goes over mid on down the ground and then over cover you know and, and when you're driving sixes over cover you know you're in Damian Martin 2003 World Cup final sort of form and and that was I remember watching when those sixes started going watching Shafali Verma in the field and she was shot she was every time Healy hit a six Shafali would turn her back on the 
wicket completely, like she was just trying to block out what was happening. She was kicking at the ground, her head was slumped, and, and I, th- I remember saying at the time, this this kid's not going to make any runs tonight. She's just gone. She's gone already. And so yeah. basically Australia had managed to take a wicket while they were still batting just by getting on top of her emotionally and, and not not letting her be the, the dominant force that she's been through the group stages. Yeah, that's well put because we, we, we saw the way she responded to getting out later with you know head inside of her shirt crying for the majority of India's chase. Like She was um, she was overcome by the whole thing. And you get mm. that. She's the youngest player to ever turn out in a World Cup final, man or woman. Um, she's only been, I think she's like 16 and 100 days or something ridiculous like that. So um, she'll play in many more of those finals. But um, yeah, the Shikapandi over, uh, the way that um, the TV commentary team, Michael Clark especially, responded to that third, sixth, the, uh, the advance inside out over extra cover. It was a magnificent shot. Two balls before she hit the longer six in the competition, if I recall correctly. And then, um, yeah, as you say, Shikapandi, who's been so consistent through the tournament. I put her in my team of the tournament still. I, mm. think, I think the way she bowled um, early on to set India's um, campaign up was, was as important, if not more important, than Poonam Yadav. So many variations, so accurate. She's uh, taken the mantle of the, the senior seamer in that Indian side upon the retirement of John Goswami. And um, to see her get absolutely dismantled by Healy said more about the batter than it did the bowler, really. Mm. Uh, and it allowed Mooney as well. Jeff, I mean, you know, I was very involved with the Mooney innings and very involved with, you know, watching her bat and just thinking <laughs> to myself that how, how often have we talked about Beth Mooney over the last yep. six years? And. Uh, early on especially when she was outside of the Australian team I remember you know she mm. was a bit of a, a whipping girl there um, not, after getting into the team because her fielding wasn't up to scratch well there you go it takes three catches two crackers in, in the World Cup final um, you know the idea that she was an understudy to Elisa Healy early on and, and you know she was getting an opportunity as a specialist bat but whether she was good enough to play as a specialist bat but so many times we both saw in, in the big bash early on that she would bat through in innings and that's what Healy enabled Mooney to do in the very same way that it happened um, earlier in the comp, I think, against, uh, was it Bangladesh or maybe, no, sorry, rather it was New Zealand, where, where, uh, where in a clutch game, um, Mooney was able to sort of bat through. Uh, the same was, was uh, the case uh, against uh, India in the final, batting for 78 not out. So even though Healy was the one that uh, made the massive dent, it was Mooney being able to, again, not allow consistent wickets to fall through the middle. It meant that Lanning and Haynes mm. and, uh, and Gardner falling cheaply didn't matter because Mooney was there. Um, well, she never gave them a sniff. Also, I mean, they fell cheaply but and, and didn't score quickly. That was the other thing. You know, Lanning was made 16 but didn't make them quickly. Now, if they'd got Mooney as well um, and had been able to have that, that that lack of scoring at both ends, they could have really held the score back. As it was, they couldn't because even though wickets were falling at one end, Mooney was still scoring quickly at the other end as well. So it wasn't. Yeah, well, wasn't Australia like, should have got two hundred, right? Australia should have got mm. two twenty at one stage. They should have got two hundred and one eighty four. I mean, with hindsight, you go massive score. India were never going to chase it, but at the halfway mark, you kind of think, well, India didn't do a particularly bad job at the death. Um, I think the last two overs might have gone for, for thirteen or fourteen, something like that. I don't think they hit the boundary in the last over. So you kind of looking at that. Seeing it as a as a viable mm. chase if India click, but um, as has been the case through the tournament, Verma's made runs and they've had contributions from Rodriguez at different points, and uh, uh, Tanya Bardia made runs a couple of times, but not from mm. Smriti Mandana and not from Harman Prekor. And the big four were all out inside the power play. They also lost Bartia, the keeper, in a really weird one, wasn't it? It was a retired hurt off Jess Johnson's second ball, a spinner. You mm. don't often see um, a spinner causing a batter to retire hurt, but the angle it hit her on the, on the side 
side of the helmet um, had her concussed but I mean, it was just the same as the semi-final, wasn't it? Throw the ball to shoot, throw the ball to Jonathan. You're two bankers, and you know that. And again, this is the the, the the brilliance of Lanning's decision, knowing that if there was going to be more pressure in a close game in the second half of it, she trusts shoot and Jonathan to get through eight frugal overs and and land the ball in a in a shoebox time and time again. Uh, I guess uh, there is something to be said for the fact that when it really, really mattered, um, Australia were able to get out of jail uh, beyond the rain and South Africa um, in Sydney. And then I feel as though they were probably liberated um, having made it to the MCG, given all the expectation was about them getting there. Um, they'd made it there. So the fact that there was, you know, the better part of 90,000 people there and it was a World Cup final, um, that was almost less important than them making it to that game, if that makes sense. So they were able to just yeah. go out there and, and play with that freedom and, and be their best selves, if you like. I, I think that aspect of it was huge in that th- th- there was pressure on them to make the final and, and in terms of the tournament being a commercial success and a promotional success and all the rest of it, once they'd got there, that was enough. They'd done their job there. And so once they'd got there, they were just playing for themselves, you know, for, for their achievement as a team. But I also thought that y- you could look at that scorecard and say that's not a good match to watch because it wasn't close. But I thought that those who showed up got their entertainment in the first half. It, it wasn't like Definitely. one of those games where both sides are ordinary and one side wins. It, it was a it was a match where one side dominated through brilliance, um, through playing amazingly watchable cricket. You know, anybody watching that Healy Mooney partnership for eleven point four overs was having the time of their lives because that was tremendous to watch so I think you can see a team smash another team if they do it in an entertaining uh, free-flowing style like Australia did it can still be great to watch it wasn't like Australia scrapped and stumbled their way to 110 and then then bowled them out Mm. for 99 um, to a parade of bad shots it was Australia just being too good so while we're talking about Australia, why don't we get the response after the game, Megan Shute and then Beth Mooney, uh, who I spoke to after they won that final. Can you believe that? Just like, looking around the ground today and I'm just going, this is fucking packed. Like there's 80,000 plus early on and I was getting skin tingling and stuff and I'm just watching. Like, yeah. Oh, honestly, it was absolutely insane. Um, I was a bit distracted a few times while I was out there counting the Mexican wave and when all the lights on the phones came on, I don't know, I just, we really spoke about before the game trying to enjoy every moment and I tried to genuinely do that while I was out there and I think I did that very well because I was one happy girl out there, that's for sure. You try to you keep your shit together though. Like you, 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 that just doesn't happen, you know. At the end of the day, it's a game of cricket. I don't know, I think the best part of it was obviously they're there for us and normally when we've had big crowds it's been on the back of a double header or, or something like that so to see the people um, we, when we're coming on the bus and we saw people lining up to get in the gates um, it kind of really hit me then that this is happening and, and this is real they wanted to feel the G and they've gone out and bloody done it so um, we just thought if we just play some good cricket what will be will be and we're actually all probably the calmest have been the entire tournament which is weird Were you aware of so like Shafali after she dropped that catch her body language is off she was kind of kicking the ground and looking dark the whole time were you conscious of that when you were bowling definitely Uh, 100% I she's young and she's got a lot of learning to do and obviously in the game of cricket um, body language is everything Um, you don't really want to know let the opposition know when they're on top of you and that was obviously a pretty costly drop Um, she's got a long future ahead of her but um, uh, one thing she's going to have to do is harder emotions because I think that's really important in cricket you you felt like you were a good chance up against her because of that I felt I was a good chance against her anyways Um, it's either going over the fence or it's out generally that's the way she bats so um, I was just hoping that it was obviously going to go swing my way um, the first shot and I 
saw it in 10, I thought, well, this is real game on here. They're going to go for it. What's your, your feeling tonight? You, you've played at some, some backward grounds. you played in front of some small crowds, and then you're out there tonight with 80,000, 86,000. What does it mean to you? What, what's the experience like? Proud, I think. Proud to be a part of the changing landscape of sport in this country and around the world. I think um, I feel grateful as well to be given the opportunity to perform on the big stage um, and also um, excited about what the future holds for the sport. For you personally as well, 2016, that World T20, you're kind of on the fringe, you're batting at seven, you're not getting much of a run, you're... you're just in the team, basically, and now you're the player of the tournament uh, in, in the home World Cup. It's you wouldn't read about it, would you? <laughs> um, I was probably hanging by a thread in that T20 World Cup. I didn't, you know, I've, I always, I still think I'm an, it's just this average cricketer who's a little bit lucky. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the things that I pride myself on is trying to be better every day, whether it's as a as an athlete, as a cricketer, as a human being, um, and to be able to see some, I guess, evidence to suggest that I am doing something right is is great. But also, you know, everyone, every single person in this group makes it really easy to perform on the big stage. So it's really exciting that we get to share it together. Yeah, that innings was in two parts. What you were able to sit back while Elisa was going, and then really flowered after she got out. Was that conscious that you? Thought I've got to now take the lead as the senior player who's in. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the longer you're out there, the easier it is to bat and you collect all the information and data that's in front of you and help your mate out at the other end. And, you know, I was just happy to help Midge out and get her on strike. She was hitting it that well. But then, obviously, you want to kick on from a big partnership like that and not lose wickets. So um, Meg makes my life easy too. She reminds me that, you know, let's just build a partnership. You don't need to go helter-skelter and, and take the game on. We just will get runs as they come. That's six she hit in a row. Um, she just had this huge smile on her face coming down to you. Do you remember what, what you said between you? I said, that's an outrageous shot. You're kidding me, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, Jeff. Interesting there that um, Beth was, was talking about those early days in the Australian camp. And it, it did take her a while to feel like she belonged, even if you um, cast forward to the 2017 50-over World Cup, when they were talking about how they might rejig the Australian side. More often than it should have, Mooney's name ended up in the conversation. So... Mm. Uh, yeah, she. But now, I mean, she was player of the tournament. Uh, more runs in a T20 than anyone's ever made in a World T20 or a T20 World Cup. Uh, and I think she's back to the number one ranked uh, batter in the world. I think I saw that yesterday. So she's overtaken Shafali Verma again, uh, back into the number one spot. Well, player of the tournament as well um, in, in the prize giving ceremony, Beth Mooney. So her consistency across the tournament was rewarded uh, the, the number of times that she was able after that first couple of games where she did look nervous especially against India in the opening match she uh, was able to sort her head out and, and make a big contribution um, the, the Australians were the, the, their musical crossover was getting up on stage with Katy Perry um, I, I particularly liked how almost the entire team they're a, they're a slightly straight laced bunch the Australian team almost that whole squad was standing a bit awkwardly behind Katy Perry not knowing what to do except for Molly Strano and Sophie Molyneux who were like, yes, this is our moment. We, we may not moment, be the headline yeah. players, but we're getting front of stage and we know all the words to every song and we are going to get right into this. 
Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Well, we, we've talked about Molly Strano on the, on the podcast before and her uh, fantastic personality. Uh, so I wasn't surprised when I saw the images back that she was uh, leading uh, the charge, wearing a wide-brimmed hat, and pair of glasses, you know, the the whole the whole kit, and, uh, and was racing up and down the stage. And likewise, Sophie Molyneux, I saw a side-on shot from someone's mobile phone of uh, Sophie Molyneux uh, doing the worm <laughs> behind, the, <laughs> behind the crew at one stage. Uh, so we've seen, a, in the last World Cup, uh, Sophie Molyneux, you um, was uh, was uh, doing some fine DJing work as well. So yeah, mm. excellent. The two Victorian and Melbourne Renegades players got to enjoy that moment on, on their home ground. And, and really, Jeff, I think that that might be a, a, a nice enough moment to say that they are for mine uh, the C bus super performance of the week. Yeah, I fully concur. We we've got to pick one each week, uh, one thing, one event, one Hall of Fame style entry as a Seabus Super Performer and I think the two Mollies uh, for how they got together on the stage and then I, I need to add a little bit extra in uh, for you Adam, so the next mm. day, the Monday, I got together a, a gathering of uh, you know some of the, the commentators and, and TV and radio people and, and so on um, Mel Jones had organised for after that tournament and you know various uh, old friends and and colleagues and so on were, uh, had all got together in a nice quiet afternoon location for a drink and and who should show up at about five in the afternoon I reckon but Molly Strano uh, <laughs> and I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school to just say to just the broad brushes the broad outlines are still wearing a team kit at at five pm the next day still wearing the Australian team wow. kit also wearing katie perry's shoes um a, a pair of, of white leather high heels and carrying the world cup trophy with her on arrival so well that's about right isn't it? I, I have seen a photo of her wearing katie perry's shoes i want to know how she went about pilfering um, the boots off off the you know international superstar who's rocked up and you know performed so brilliantly i mean her, her stage show was awesome uh, and then going right. Can I just can I just grab your kit? I mean, you know, it's a very uh, yeah, it's a very sort of uh, it's sort of just, grade cricketer areas, isn't it? Just followed the the SKW tradition. Don't ask. Don't yeah, that's get. right. <laughs> <laughs> so Molly's the two Molly's are our Seabus Super Performer of the Week, and I think that's that's fitting because you know they're not the highest profile players in the squad. But they're in the squad and they got to enjoy all of the benefits of being in the squad. Much like CBUS makes sure that all profits go to members, not to shareholders. As long as you're involved, you can reap the rewards. To find out if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au to find a PDS. And remember that past performance does not necessarily reliably indicate future performance, Adam. Lovely, lovely work. Jeff, uh, just to uh, touch on uh, the three semi-finalists who, who didn't make it through, we've already talked about India. I just wanted to add, uh, Anjum Chopra, the former Indian international and, and commentator, was, was asked on the coverage by Nasser Hussain what this would mean for Indian women's cricket. So uh, we set this narrative up last week on the, on the final word in that if India were to win a World Cup final on the MCG, well, you know, you can guarantee there will be a women's IPL using the uh, the history of the the men winning the tournament in 2007, which was the, the precursor to the IPL, which started in 2008. And it was interesting to hear Chopra's response. She, she didn't sort of uh, take the upside of the question, which I think that's what NASA was pointing towards. He's like, well, you know, this, this huge global stage playing in front of millions of people. Indeed, I, I think I saw today it was the biggest TV audience ever for a women's sporting event or something like that. Crazy. It certainly was um, in, Australia. in Australia. Yeah, in Australia. Distance. Sorry, in Australia. Yeah, so, you know. I'm not sure about worldwide. So the, 
No, yeah, yeah, you're right. It was it was an Australian figure, but I digress. It was the so Nas was asking that question or framing it that way, and Chopra's response was, "Oh, no, no, not that she was diminishing um, uh, the, where Indian women's cricket's going, but she sort of said that people will be furious." that they've lost a World Cup final to Australia uh, on the MCG. She was very negative uh, about this. And looking at social media in the aftermath, uh, that seems fairly consistent for what I've seen so far. The Indian fans are, are furious that they've lost. Now, that's on, on one hand a very good thing uh, because, of course, we, we, uh, you know, we want to see um, losses, um, critiques for men the same way they are for women and vice versa. And I do just have a little bit of a concern that a losing Indian team won't be, and they're not a losing team, but a team that's lost, um, having gone through the group stage without dropping a game as they did in the 2018 edition of this tournament before getting bundled out in the semis by England in the 2017 uh, World Cup where they lost the final after being in a commanding position at Lords. Um, whether it may not necessarily um, mean that we get this sort of coveted women's IPL soon because frankly the supporters are too angry at their side for losing. Um, we, we know um, how, um, how binary it can be sometimes when talking cricket with Indian cricket fans. And uh, look, I, I just hope that they see the bigger picture here at Ministrators. And this is the start of the Indian journey. They're a young team. They had two 16-year-olds playing in the final. Um, they're led by Harman Kaur, who's in the peak of her powers. Um, Smriti Mandana is 21 years old. Um, they have done their generation change. But Dali Raj is still playing in the 50-over team. But that generation has largely been left behind. Mm. Um, this is the start of something for India. They'll go to New Zealand next year for the World Cup, every chance of winning the thing. They'll be on, I guess, the, the second line of favouritism along with England uh, and, and possibly the host New Zealand, given where it's being played, but uh, behind Australia, of course, who, who will be seeking you know revenge for having not won the comp in 2017. So, But I, I, yeah, I just hope that people can keep their cool about this Indian team. Yes, they got thrashed in the final, but this is, on the whole, a very positive story. Well, I th there's a fundamental problem in the way a lot of people follow sport, which is that when you have two sides, one of them tends to lose. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's that's most often the way that matches are worked out. So, uh, freaking out about that or, or overreacting about that when it comes to knockout games and uh, and one-off finals just just seems overdone. You know, South Africa have lost a couple of semi-finals in, in a row and I'm sure people will start tapping into tired old shit and talking about choking and whatever, but they're not they're got not a good enough side to choke. They're they're a side they're a massive underdog against any of the the three sides above them. They've they've got to produce a huge boil over to to win a semi-final like that. They're logically going as far as they can and and India are a team with limitations. They've they're a very changeable team they're you know I, I used Katy Perry lyrics to describe them in the match report they're hot and they're cold they're yes and they're no you know they, they, <laughs> they're up and down they're in and they're out and they were in and out at that final with the rate that the wickets came but that's that is who that team is you can't expect them to be completely consistent all the time they're not that well drilled yet they might become that way with a few more years of support and development yeah and Harman Preet was pretty clear in her post game comments wasn't she that they need to be a better fielding team across the board they, they seldom field well and, and that's just a, a professionalism thing I mean they're, they're, as I say they're at the start of that journey that upward spike let's remember that I mean the Australian and England teams weren't professional six years ago so this is all new terrain for a lot of these teams mm. and that's and, and really Indians women's cricket program wasn't a considerable one I mean I've used this comparison many many times before but the Madali Raj Twitter following at the last World Cup she, she had 4,000 Twitter followers at the start and 200 at the end I mean this is a kind of a new thing 
um, that there's this amount of focus and attention on them. So let's embrace that. Uh, you, you mentioned South Africa, um, beaten semi-finalist. Um, they um, were nine minutes away from qualifying uh, for the final. That would have been uh, emotionally taxing, I think, as well. When that rain came down between innings, Jeff, I gather from the coverage it was quite heavy for a, a couple of minutes there. And they would have seen the overs being taken off the clock uh, they would have seen how close they were to reaching that MCG final and then them just getting on with nine minutes to spare. I mean, I'm sure that would have affected their batting to an extent um, when they went out there sort of unclear about what was going to be ahead of them. But still, I feel as though without a domestic structure, um, not a serious one anyway, um, with fewer fully contracted players, um, with uh, you know a record of underperformance uh, in big series and, and, and I guess uh, big tournaments with the exception of 2017 um, and having not really come into this tournament with particularly good run of form that they've they've exceeded expectations it's a good result for them having got to where they've got to as disappointing as it would be they're once again very emotional um, they're all I saw I mean uh, Ayabunga Kaka in absolute I mean, sobbing tears, not just normal tears, but absolutely sobbing on the coverage mm. after play. You could see uh, Danae had been crying as well before she spoke to the post-game presentation. I mean, they're a passionate side. I said last week I love following the South African women's team. They're one of my favourite teams to, to talk to and be involved with. And I think that... Um, I think that they will now move to the World Cup next year thinking that they've got an opportunity to uh, do well again. They, they won't leave this feeling as though they've got too far to move. Yeah, they've, they've got an opportunity, but as I said, I think they're still a side that's a ways behind the others, you know, not least just in terms of support and professionalism, in terms of the the amount of money that they're able to make from playing the game, um, you know, the fact that probably mm. most of the income those sort of players could get would rely on being picked up in overseas leagues like the Big Bash and so on in, in order to supplement their national payments where, you know, even for the, the men's players who are on more there's still a massive drain of of cricketing talent overseas because of that so South Africa have they're coming from a long way back basically in terms of the the practical infrastructure that supports them Adam it is time again for a nerd pledge the game of nerds the game of pledges (laughs) the game where people use our patron page as a means to support the show by sending us amounts of dollars and cents that correlate to some form of number in cricket If that doesn't sound like it makes sense, listen on, dear friends, and you will find out what does make sense. Uh, next, now you you had um, you had Winnie involved with some nerd pledge stuff last week. Is that right? Oh, and only only to the extent that um, uh, I, I had her sitting with me when I did my rant about the semi final. Indeed, she just shuttle over me before we started recording today. So um, she's um, it reminded me of that old Splash Mountain thing at Disneyland. You know, you know, you may not get wet, you will get soaked. That's how it feels with um, my <laughs> my young daughter at the moment. Um, she's uh, she's really um, taken to the projectile shit with gusto over the last few days well, well played to it you, um, uh, but no so she projectile <laughs> shits on you before the show and then I shit on you during the show <laughs> yeah so the uh, so the um, well I guess this counts as the Winnie update as well she, mm. not very flattering Winnie update but she's a wonderfully well behaved girl um, <laughs> Winnie the th- poo th- quite literally <laughs> Literally. Uh, thanks to those who listen or watch the World Cup videos on Patreon during the uh, competition. Mostly Jeff's in the end. I didn't quite get as many done as I would have liked, but in hindsight, I've been a lot busier in the last fortnight than I probably thought I would be, given I've been a parent for three weeks. Um, but no, that worked really well. So thanks for um, tuning in to those as we're putting them up. We'll, we'll do more of that interactive stuff with patrons. So if you haven't been part of the, the, the patron family in the past, you can expect more more of that come into the future. And, um, and of course, as we've mentioned before, Jeff, there is 
provision on our Patreon page to engage us in in, in other events. Um, so we, we've you know we're offering ourselves up as, as MCs and uh, being involved in, in cricket club events and, and all the rest. We've we've done our live show before at, at various different places, and and that's something that you can you can engage us for as well through Patreon. So um, consider doing that. But but first and foremost, consider doing an air pledge. Yes, uh, like James Rodder or Rhoda did to let us know Adam was right about his Darren Lehman. 177 was Darren Lehman's highest test score. The new numbers we've got in this week, the first from David Peterson, who has sent in 306, $3.06. 306 is one we had a few weeks ago. We guessed it might be Ellen Border's one-day batting average of 30.6. It was, in fact, Simon Kadich's highest first-class score of 306. And now here it is again, 306. So I was thinking this week, well, I've got to think of something else that it could be that's not either of them those things because how much further can we take this number? It didn't look like a very strong test cap number. 306 is Bruce Laird for Australia, Len Wilkinson for England, who I think played three tests maybe in 1938, and Ryan McLaren for South Africa, who, who played a couple. Um, maybe Carlos Braffett the West Indies all-rounder because there aren't a lot of test countries that have had more than 306 test players. They're mostly under the 300s. I think I was at his test debut as well, Carlos Brathwaite. So, we both uh, were at, at the MCG. That. Oh, I was at the MCG debut. Right, right. Yeah. No, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of the tour game. The first game I ever covered properly uh, on a tour was in Antigua in uh, 2015 where... Carlos Brathett found Rogers uh, outside edge and was taken at gully last ball before lunch and he did a lap of the field. <laughs> he took off, <laughs> ran all the way around in a, in a sign of things to come. Uh, I've always enjoyed uh, watching him thereafter and uh, yes, we saw his debut at the MCG and then we saw him take... When he out, hit James Pattinson, James Pattinson for a couple of sixes. Yeah, the SCG in that washed out game uh, in, in uh, 2015 or early 2016 rather. So um, yes, I, I, I don't mind it if it is Carlos but I, mm. I probably doubt it because he's not often in, a, in the test team. Well, look could be. Um, the only other thing that I, I found, Srikumar Nair made a 306 for Kerala in, in the Ranji Trophy. And the only that's other good. 306 I could find score-wise, because there's, there's 307 in test wickets, that's Fred Truman, but nobody's got 306 test wickets. However, this one was niche enough that I thought it could be it. Mark Richardson, the New Zealand opener, made his top first-class score against Zimbabwe A in a warm-up for a test tour in the year 2000, in September 2000. It remains the only triple century ever made in Zimbabwean first-class cricket. It belongs to oh. a New Zealand opening batsman. No one else in Zim FC cricket has ever gone past 300. So Mark Richardson did that, and then a couple of weeks later in his second test match, he made 99 against Zimbabwe. So he was in some form in Zim in 2000. So is that it? <laughs> Well, if that's where it's at, if that's where David Peterson has landed, then I really want to be friends with him. That would suggest a <laughs> level of niche that means that we should be friends for life. I, I also picked up um, uh, a 306 uh, that when Lara reached 306 for Warwickshire on his way to mm. 501, that was the highest score for the county. So he, he took the highest score and ran with it for another 195 runs. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's all I've got, though. I've got a Lara, um, the second time I mentioned um, Brian Charles today. That's pretty good. There's a there's a movie, um, a documentary about that innings coming out shortly. I think, or that that might even have been released in the UK that I've seen a preview of, which is which is excellent really? about the five hundred one. A fictionalized, a fictionalized. No, no, like a, a proper doco using a lot of file footage, and um, oh, right. it, it's a great piece of filmmaking about the cool. five hundred one and that season at Warwickshire. So uh, I'm happy to go with that for David Peterson. Thank you, David. 
Thanks, David. Joe Bracker, who messaged us a few weeks ago, we read out his email on the show, has come in with five eighty eight. $5.88. Anything, Adam? Hmm. Well, uh, only that, Jeff, you, you sort of hinted to me that it might be Surrey-related. Um, yeah, well, I remember him talking about watching uh, Surrey games with his dad. That was the, the, the okay. tenor of the email a few weeks ago. Well, that, that informs my um, quick research before. I had a feeling I remembered 588. Look, it has to be Kumar Sangakara's run, I think, if it's Surrey-related. So at one stage through that run, which I was very lucky to see a chunk of the inning. So to, the backstory here is in 2017, in his final season of county cricket at age 39, Sankakara made eight centuries in the space of 11 innings. It was ridiculous. And five of them came on the trot. So only uh, only three other players have made eight centuries in the space of 11 innings. So Ponsford, Bradman did it twice, and Lara once again. And there's a handful that have made five first-class tons on the bounce and that's what Lara had done uh, across the month of May 2017 I was very fortunate to see the second of those twin tons at Lords against Middlesex it was a glorious innings no one else can make a run and and, uh, and Sanger was just off his chops and he made another one uh, his fifth in a row at Chelmsford the following week I think he made that a double after coming in at like 30 for 5 or something like that or they were 30 for 5 or he wouldn't have came in mm. for the 5th wicket but they were really struggling sorry and he went on to blast a double ton against Essex who um, who were in quite a formidable attack uh, I think they won the comp in, in 2017 if memory serves me correctly uh, and then um, and then he then he fell 16 short but in that run he, he had his portrait presented at Lord's uh, which um, which still hangs there and Jeff I think you would have saw it last year when it's a really nicely saw it and I made out with it <laughs> well, there you go. You know it well then. Uh, and and <laughs> when, he, when he completed, when he completed uh, that, that second... They accused of me of ruining the painting. I said, I was framed. <laughs> uh, he, he had 588 runs to his name in that streak um, the week that he had the portrait review, mm. which prompted plenty of headlines, which is, must be why it jumped out at me. But yes, he, he went on to add a fifth ton in that run and, as I say, eight in 11 innings for Surrey that year. I saw the last of those, so it was against, I want to say, Somerset last week of the season, September 2017. So I love the end of the season mm. in county cricket because it gets darker earlier and it's a, it's quite cool outside and you only really get the, the ultras who show up if if, uh, if the side isn't going to win the comp. But there were so many people there that day to watch Shangakara bat one last time and finish his three seasons in South London in style and he mm. did precisely that. We went bananas on the balcony at Wisden uh, Cricket Monthly when he, when, he, uh, when he got there. I've got a nice video of the moment as well with the Surrey Ultras going wild over in the Peter May stand. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a... Um, it was a yeah. It was a it was a great season, and I, and I think it, yes. If it's if it's a Surrey supporter, um, Joe Bracker, and he's a Sanger fan, then there's there is that link to five eighty eight. Excellent. I'm prepared to accept it. I'll give you a tick. Bing. Uh, Dave is our last one for today, and Dave has come through with two dollars and four cents. And two oh four, Adam, can only be a match that we've talked about many times on the final word. Um, Australia versus England in the World Cup of two thousand and three, when. The great Andy Bickle took seven for 20. I think it was just after Glenn McGrath had taken seven for 15 against Namibia, so mm. he couldn't quite get the best Australian ODI figures with seven for 20 because McGrath just gobbled them up against... It says a bit about Andy Bickle's career, doesn't it? That, you know, he takes seven for 20 and he's still the most... It really does. Like He, he was forever the understudy, wasn't he? He was kind mm. of in and out of that side when one of the, I guess, uh, one of the... One of the 
bowlers who was held in higher esteem than him was injured or he forced a bowler out of the team and that's kind of where I wanted to take this. So, yeah, Bickle takes 7 for 20 in, in the 2003 World Cup against England when they're all out for 204. And then he, um, I should add, hits Jimmy Anderson into the scoreboard there at Port Elizabeth, um, the, which sits at deep mid-wicket. It's a long boundary out there on the, I think it's the western side of the ground, but he managed to plonk it into there. So I think that got Australia over the line or got them very close to the finish line in a Got in a them over, scrap. I reckon, with, with Michael yeah. Bevan um, in a yeah, low-scoring game where Australia were five for fuck all and then those That's two right. had to get together and put on well over 100 to win. Yeah, because I think Bevan, rather, I think Bickle might have made a half century uh, then as well. Anyway, in any case, it's, I, I like the idea of it being Andy Bickle. And he kept coming up last week um, over and over again on the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Podcast, Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast, rather. And uh, they, they were um, they were kind of looking at, I was going to send them a tweet to, to tell them to answer one of their questions, but I thought, what what better method to answer their question than through our podcast, you know, the <laughs> pod, podcast ping pong. They were saying, why was Andy Bickle coming in number three in Australia's chase of 450-odd in, in the Steve Waugh um, test of uh, the Ashes test of 0203 at Sydney when War made 100 in the first innings famously from the final ball of the day and um, Australia ended up being set a, a great many runs uh, Andy Caddick ended up bowling Australia out on the final day and England claimed the dead rubber but Bicker was 49 not out overnight off like 60 balls coming in at number three and if I recall correctly, that's because they just thought he was in fucking good form. Uh, they, they, they saw an opportunity before Stumps not to send out a higher-profile player. Um, Justin Langer had just been sent, been given out leg before a terrible decision by umpire Tiffin. The Zimbabwean umpire gave Langer out a ball that pitched about a foot outside the leg stump. And out comes Bickle and blasts him everywhere. He was actually out first ball of the fifth day, but um, it was he wasn't really a night watchman. It was like a strategic mm. um, play to send him out there with about an hour and a half to go on the fourth afternoon thinking that he's in such good nick that it could be a net asset having him bat now while the ball is new and when he's hitting him so well and we can save we can keep our powder dry with you know players like I guess Damian Martin and and uh, who else was in that batting lineup? Ricky Ponting Martin I guess Hayden was opening with Langer but Lehman was at six Gilchrist at seven you know pretty good batting lineup that we, mm. they'd give them the opportunity on the fifth day when the ball was a, a fraction older and it didn't quite work because they fell about a hundred short but uh, yes, it's true to say that Bickle um, did come in and, and make 49 there. So to answer your question, uh, Wisdom Cricket Mo- Weekly uh, podcasters, uh, that, that is why Andy Bickle was in at number three, because he was pretty good. <laughs> Dueling podcasts. That has been the segment Nerd Pledge for the day. If you would like to set us a nerd pledge and throw a few coins in the tin to help the podcast roll on, you can go to patreon.com slash the final word patron is spelt p-a-t-r-e-o-n why i will never know it is type that in uh put our thing at the end after the slash and then you will find us and then you can uh, watch all of the videos that we've put up during the world cup you can read a piece that i wrote up on on the page that's for subscribers and there'll be other bits and pieces and photos and whatnot going up there in the weeks to come and you can be part of the nerd pledge family and you can also drop us a line which we have got uh, an email in during the week jeff which you popped in uh, yes from uh, tim without a name remember tim last week didn't have a last name when we were doing Uh, our non-nerd pledge pledges and we had tim without the last name who was part of a uh, a super group in the 90s whose music taught us it was okay to be weird um he he wrote tim 
Gilkinson is actually his name, but he wrote, hello, Tim without last name here. It was great to have been in that super group with no name. Uh, this is a theme, you see. I was, you'll recall, playing the triangle on all of our best tracks. And since David Varley is also in Hong Kong, at least that's the rumour, a comeback gig is actually a logistical possibility. But I feel we should not tarnish our formidable reputation with a cynical cash-driven reunion, so we'll leave the music world with our six hits, which pushed the boundaries of what was possible. David Varley was a, another subscriber who was in that group and during the week David Varley also sent me a message which was a couple of videos of him taking a couple of wickets with some real filthy leg spin in a Hong Kong uh, match which he, which was only a couple of weeks ago so as I speculated he is still playing at the highest level available in Hong Kong um, and, and still picking up a few. He got one caught at slip with a wrong and that looked pretty decent to me so um, I'll see if I can pop those up on the Patreon page as well. So get on, drop us a line, uh, that's where you can contact us if you want to, uh, to send us anything else. That's Nerd Pledge. Let's take a quick break and then we are into a new episode of Statman. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Jeff, Jeffrey, Jeffers, I'm elated to say that after a couple of months riding the final word pine, we have back on the show the Sat Phone Shop. Sat Phone. It's been a long time since we've talked about them, maybe two or three months, and we, we, they were such a big part of our live shows in Melbourne and in Adelaide. They really were. Um, what did we have? We had the uh, we had the glow sticks or something like that. Yeah, we the beacons, the, um, the emergency the safety beacons, <laughs> um, the, the water bottles. Did you keep bottles. something from them? Didn't you keep some kit from them in the end? I feel like you ended up with some sat phone shop clobber, which uh, uh, like was it a, was it a satellite phone or something like that? Well, so what I've got now is a um, a satellite modem, internet modem, modem, which which I'm about to try to set up you know, sometime this week to see if, um, so that I can give you a proper user's experience of being on top of a mountain somewhere and desperately needing to check my hotmail and being able to do that or, you know, being able to say, I need to look at a .jpg file of, say, a baby shark and then I'll be able to look that up at such time as I need one. This is, these are the kind of things that, that, that having a sat phone could do. Imagine you, Adam, are participating in the Paris to Dakar rally with your infant child and uh, something goes wrong, you get a you know, bottle cap, quarter bottle cap that's been dropped by Chris Pringle and it punctures your tyre and, and you need to make a call from somewhere. Who do you want on hand? I want the sat phone shop. I, w- I want the Paris to Dakar rally. I want to go to Dakar for the first test match this year via Paris. <laughs> I'm going to Paris. I'm going to Paris uh, next, uh, next week. We're going to take Winnie down there in, in April, which... I just can't help myself when I see a cheap Eurostar deal. I mean, like, you give me a deal, I, I, I just have to hit the button. So we're, we're going to jump on the jump on the train ahead down there. So I go straight from Paris, straight to Dakar, um, yep. when Australia play there in June, although there are a couple of months in between. A lot of um, cheap flights to Rome at the moment, if you're interested. <laughs> um, so just pop on Skyscanner and you can, you can certainly snap up a bargain there. But uh, one of the other things that I'm interested that Satphone Shop offer is mobile defibrillators so you can you can jump on satphoneshop.com and of course you can buy satellite phones and modems and and kit and and, and so on but you can also grab yourself a heart sign samaritan pad 
350p defibrillator, which means that if somebody has a heart attack in front of you at the World Cup final when Elisa Healy smokes a cover drive for six, you can whip out the pads, you can zzzz, you can say clear, and then you can electrocute the shit out of them. And no one can even get you in trouble for it because you're doing somebody a favour. So these are the kind of things you can pick up on satphoneshop.com. Punch that into your internet browser and uh, they'll beam you up. Well, there's there's a serious um, edge to that as well, isn't there? That cricket clubs um, have been uh, tragically the place where a lot of people have died of heart attacks over the years. So I know that these days I think defibrillators are, are part of the offering at, at a lot of clubs. But if your club doesn't have a defibrillator, then there's, look, I suppose having a, a mobile one via sat phone shop isn't a isn't a bad place to look. Uh, so um, yes, if, if you're if you're from a local club and you don't have a defibrillator, be sure to get one because that. Yeah, sadly, as I say, on more than one occasion, certainly when I've been involved in cricket clubs, that, that has been uh, been the fate of uh, players on the field. So, um, yes, do look into that. Grab yourself a heart starter, satphoneshop.com. And now, it's time for... Yeah, I'm a Statman. That's right, it's time for Statman. I, I love the fact that we've been doing this podcast for a long time. This is maybe a couple of hundred episodes, probably more than a couple of hundred episodes, and we've never had intro music to a segment before <laughs> until now. Statman well, has, he couldn't, Statman has I couldn't not. <laughs> Like you see some podcasts, they have a, a bit of intro music for everything, but we've, mm. we've sort of avoided that um, temptation, but maybe this is the start of something. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty slack, I suppose, but also maybe we're just so organic, right? We're just, we're, we're just very much... Or a natural. Yeah. And so Statman, Statman is a... I suppose it's related to Nerd Pledge, but it's, it's a segment where I get to look into a statistical curiosity, something, something that has made me curious and made me want to look deeper. And today, Adam, I have one for you that I've been wanting to share with you for weeks since I started to look into this. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. So, so it's so it's nerd pledge adjacent. So, just explain. Okay, right. So, we're, you're gonna you're gonna lecture me, and I'm just gonna sort of be there for the ride. Well, I, I just want to tell you a story. I want to share a story with okay. you. And and fittingly yeah. for this episode, it's about women's cricket. And it started when I I think I, it was probably a Twitter thing during the WBBL. I noticed someone um, posting, you know, once again, Jody Hicks doesn't get a hit. So Jody Hicks has played. 19 matches for the Sydney Sixers starting in the 2016-17 season. She's played nine AFLW games for the Giants as well. She can play in Premier Cricket last season. She made a, had an innings of 85 or 48 balls, can hit the ball. But this all goes back to that 2016 season when uh, Jodie Hicks can't get a hit started to become a thing. She comes in for her first match of the season, uh, Elisa Healy and Elise Perry make all the runs up top. The Sixers make 138 for six. Jodie Hicks is listed down at 11. Now, I'm not entirely sure why, but that's where she's listed. And that's where she's listed in the next match where Brisbane have a shocker. They get uh, almost bowled out. They make 83. Perry knocks them off with McGlash, with McGlash and no one at the bottom of the order gets to bat. 
The next time out, six for 132. Gardner gets all the runs. Lower order doesn't get to bat. Jody Hicks in her fourth game. It's five for 158. No one down the lower order gets to bat. Healy makes 84. Uh, McGlashan, though, is pushed up to number 10 on the batting card for this game ahead of Lauren Smith. I don't know why. I don't know what happened in the interim, but she's she's nudged up to 10. That's good. The next week, she's back down at 11 again. This is a semi-final in which they lose six wickets, make 169. Marazan Cap gets a go ahead <laughs> of Jody Hicks, who is not bowling, mind you, um, but, but Marazan Cap's batting ahead of her. They're six down. Then... They win the final. Five wickets down in the final for 124. Jody Hicks is a championship player without having faced a ball in the season. She has been listed at number 11 in all but one match in which she was listed at number 10, and she never bowled. She did not bowl a single <laughs> delivery in the it's entire a, season. It's, she's the classic TFC. Thanks for coming. I mean, she, she must pay her ball fees at the start mm-hmm. of the day, has to bring her box of barbecue shapes for afternoon tea, but... Um, <laughs> But that, that's it. She's like, you, you do see it occasionally at club level when you've got a player who you, you want to sort of blood in the first 11, but they're not quite there yet with the mm. bat. They're not bowling. So you, you'll bat them at eight or nine to give them the experience. But this isn't club cricket. This is semi-professional uh, women's big bash league fair. So uh, please go on, Jeff, because I've got a feeling it continues. It, it, it doesn't end yet. Um, the next season, Jodie Hicks is back. She's made an impression <laughs> and she has been signed for another go round. Um, the first game that she's picked to play, the Sixers make that 242. It's the biggest ever T20 score at the time. Gardner makes mm. a ton. Perry makes 91 not out. Jody Hicks doesn't face a ball. The very next day, they run down 142 against the Thunder at only four wickets down. Take a seat, Jody Hicks, not required. Her next outing, they get beaten by the Scorchers after making 122. The Sixers didn't have a good day. They ended at eight wickets down. Only one player did not get to bat oh, you're kidding. that day. How's she still batting 11? This Jody is crazy. Hicks. So, listed, still, at listed at 11. Then, not bowling. Nine games into her career. <laughs> so not required, not called upon to bowl. A few days later, the Sixers rattle up 152 at eight wickets down. Ten players bat. Number 11 is Jody Hicks. <laughs> and this is... This is where I just start to lose my shit as this story unfolds. Okay, so just before it, Christmas, but the thing is, but the thing is, it kind of makes sense that at the very, very start of this story mm. that she might they're, they're finding their way with her. Like they don't mm. know much about it. We're into season two. She's been yep. involved in so many games of cricket. How is yes. it possible she's getting a start? <laughs> this is bewildering. What so, so it's just before Christmas. She takes a couple of catches. She's now got more catches than she has runs in the entire competition. Um, they knock off Hobart for 98. If nice, easy chase, you know, might be time to give some other players a run. Nope. At least Perry goes out, makes all the runs, one wicket down, and they knock it off. So Jody, you know, by this point, the, as you say, they've reached the, the end of their, their explorations with Jody. She doesn't play for the rest of the season. She gets cut for 2018-19. She's not there. But then, second half of the 2019-20 season, they have space on the list. They they need a gap filled. Guess who's back? Once again, Jody's back. Tell a friend. Jody Hicks comes back into the 11, does not bat as the Sydney Sixers make 192. They are six wickets down. They lose three wickets in the last over. 
she's listed at number nine now, rather than number, which is, she's, you know, she's worked her way up the order. She's at number nine. And although eight other players bowl in that match, she does not bowl. <laughs> Fine. She must bowl, she must bowl in the nets the most filthy off breaks <laughs> to not even be considered a, like in all of these games when she's not batted and not once has turned to her and said you know have a twist she this is a curious this, this story gets more complicated with every game please go on it, we're not done yet Adam finally on the 19th of October 2019 against Brisbane seven wickets go down Jody Hicks walks out to bat hey. on a cricket field for the first time. She is batting at number nine. She gets her chance. She faces up. She is LBW second ball for a duck to Amelia Kerr. <laughs> <laughs> so her stats page... Oh, Christ. I mean... <laughs> Sydney get rolled for 73. Amelia Kerr is 19 years old, playing her first season, is a bowler, and she will bat nine times in this season alone. <laughs> In, in Jody Hicks's next game, Elise Perry knocks off 107 at two wickets down. In the next, seven wickets do fall, and she's batting at number nine. Finally, her chance has come. Yes. The seventh wicket falls from the last delivery of the innings. <laughs> <laughs> The next game, they make four for 139. Now Marizan Cap is batting at number five and makes a half century, where in the first season she was just sneaking in ahead of Jodie Hicks. All right, next time around, Jodie Hicks gets a promotion to number eight. She is absolutely middling them in the nets, clearly. The Sixers make 164, runs a shared around, six wickets go down, she's batting at number eight. The sixth wicket falls on the last ball of the innings. Goodness me. Okay, second last game of the season. She's still at eight, and there's a miracle. The sixth wicket goes down with 26 deliveries left. This is a lifetime, right? She has got time to get herself in. She has a look at one, and then she scores a run off Megan's shoot, gets a single, gets oh. another single, faces Talia McGrath, scores a brace, then a single. She's getting the hang of this. She has turned over the strike. She's down at the non-striker's end, five not out. Lauren Smith, who used to bat behind her back in that first season blasts one back at Talia McGrath bounces off her and runs out Jodie Hicks at the non-strike except <laughs> oh dear <laughs> okay but to prove the universe is not entirely cruel she gets one more game she's batting at eight again again six wickets fall Marazan Cap gets out she walks out there with two balls left in the innings Jodie Hicks she faces one and gets bowled first ball for a duck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what must it, what must she be like? What imagine her self worth as a cricketer and how like to have been involved in that many victories, indeed to be a championship player, to have missed out so often, and then when the opportunity finally arises to have been out for a, a, a couple of ducks in the space of four balls, and then getting run out at the non-strikers, and I mean. I'm glad you've done. I'm glad you've done the the work on this, Jeff. She deserves her story to be told. But I just feel for her. I mean, what should, what should I, I, think about the game? I mean, everyone hates cricket who plays it. Obviously, it's part of the. <laughs> it's a precondition of being a club cricketer or any sort of cricketer that you hate cricket. You want it to be rained off. In in many respects, she's had the perfect career. I mean, mm. 
And thanks for coming. I mean, yeah, sure, you, you, you have to field, but you don't have the chance to embarrass yourself with the bat and to fail yeah. in front of you. can just say, oh, no, I didn't get a hit. Oh, sorry to hear it, mate. No worries. But <laughs> that, that is a superior outcome to have tried and failed. I mean, I know that kind of runs mm. counter to the old adage of, of, uh, of, of trying and failing is better to have never tried at all or, or some version of that. But I think in cricket, it's, it's the inverse. And on that basis, maybe she's had the best possible career. Maybe. It's just when you, when you look at the numbers at the end of it, 19 matches, three innings, including a run of two ducks in three balls, five runs in those 19 matches, never bowled a single delivery in the WPBL, made five runs and took four catches, so on par there, and faced eight balls in four seasons of professional cricket. So she's been involved in... in well, I say involved, she's been in the field, but she, if she's been involved in eight deliveries out of 19 yep. games, so 19 games means... Well, has faced know, eight deliveries. Yeah, so, and, uh, yeah, so eight, eight yeah. deliveries out of, out, of, out of 19 games, so 19 times 20, let's say. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't have batted yep. 20 overs each time, but... I mean, the percentage of balls she's been involved in across her career is, uh, well, it, it, obviously this has never happened before, not like this, um, so, and, and, and it can't possibly happen again, especially with the not bowling either. So No, it's about 2,500 deliveries. Wow. <laughs> she's a lot, of, a lot of watching. Well, I'm glad you've given her her story an airing today, Jeff. Um, Jodie Hicks, I mean, you're welcome to come on the final word any time to tell us all about it. Um, I hope you get another opportunity next year. Indeed, what I mostly hope for you is you, you, you put the feelers out at other clubs and get a lifeline somewhere else where they might bat you, you know, in the top eight on a consistent and, basis. And I hope the footy career um, works out a lot better than, Indeed. than the cricket career. At least you get to run on. At least you get Who's to, she playing for in the footy? The GWS Giants. Good stuff. She's only 23. Stuff. I mean, she's got she's got plenty of potential, plenty of time ahead of her. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why, but I had to tell you the story of Jodie Hicks and the Sydney Sixers on Statman. Yeah, I'm a Statman. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Last on the show today, the lightning round where we zip around things that have happened elsewhere in the cricket world. Over in South Africa, Australia finished off a one-day series loss 3-0, a series that nobody paid any attention to, including us, because it was on during that Women's World Cup. I, I would have thought they could at least finish it in time to get the men's players back for that final and, and have them at the ground as a show of support, but uh, that was not to be. Yeah, look, I, I think in my time covering the Australian team, there's never been in a series with less attention uh, than, than this for the men. So uh, the fact that they lost 3-0 at the start of the one-day cycle doesn't mean an awful lot. They would have enjoyed winning the T20 series a lot more than they uh, were disappointed by losing the one-dayers. I would note that um, in the second one-dayer, both Aaron Finch and Darcy Short finished on 69. Nice, nice. And in the uh, third one-dayer, from an Australian perspective, Marnus Labuschagne uh, making his maiden one-day international 100 in front of his family. So the, the South African flags were waving for him as well, evidently, according to reports from the ground. There was a big celebration from him. I think there was 30 uh, members of the uh, Labba Shane family there, but of course we're the Labba Shkakni family, as um, as I think Pommy said on the commentary, um, he left as Labba Shkakni and came back as Labba Shane, which, which um, you know, it, it feels about right, uh, given our earlier conversations. The closure of AAP, that's something that will affect 
sporting coverage hugely and you know we've worked with a, an awful lot of AAP journos over the years Adam and they're always the outlet that's there when nobody else is there's a lot of games where it's been you and me and and an AAP reporter and that's about it yeah, and there was a presentation to, to Michael Ramsey, Junior Rambo, as we affectionately call him, uh, to end that South African series, the final series that AAP, Australian Associated Press, will cover. They've been everything for 85 years, have not missed a single series in 85 years. To think they won't be there, it's devastating for our colleagues, Robbie Forsyth, uh, mentioned Junior Rambo, to Macca, to Scotty Bailey. I mean, these are gun reporters, and there's others as well we, we've worked with over the journey, but um, those that have been on the circuit most in the last few years um, have of course, Ben Horn, who did the presentation along with Justin Langer and Brian Murgatroyd, the uh, Australian team media manager, also originally an agency reporter. Um, they, uh, they, Benny himself is now the News Corp uh, senior cricket writer. Um, he got his start with AAP, as did Dan Bredig, who we have had on the show before, who's Crick Info's senior writer in Australia. Um, Patrick Keane, of course, who works at the AFL now, but was uh, a long-term uh, servant to AAP, which just reflects the fact that it's been a wonderful breeding ground for cricket writers in Australia. Australia for generations and it's just a, we won't go into the politics of why this is a completely cooked uh, thing to happen but in practical terms as you say Jeff um, it, it's often been a, a couple of people um, and AAP uh, doing the majority of the coverage uh, now it'll probably just be Cricket Australia's website who attend a lot of uh, events that would have been Cricket Australia plus AAP, certainly um, tours that are off-Broadway, white ball tours and, and, and the like. And um, yes, uh, uh, not to say that the Cricket Australia um, reporters don't um, provide a valuable service in their own way, but it is different to an independent media arm like AAP. It's just fundamentally different. So um, all our positive energy and, 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 and thoughts are with our... Um, colleagues who are now finding themselves without a job they're all wonderful uh, reporters in their own right and I'm sure they'll all find their way into other jobs in hopefully in cricket because they've been just the best people to travel with uh, and we're devastated for them. One competition that will feel it is the Sheffield Shield where that's often the only coverage Victoria have bounced back from being last at the season break they've won three in a row and now they're second on the table. Crazy story uh, the Victorian camp after the Big Bash when you sort of hear them doing their media interviews was sort of saying they wanted to to finish the season well they, they, they'd had a stinker before Christmas then the Big Bash uh, break which lasts for I think seven weeks and then they were kind of hoping they'd finish on a high in the last four rounds no expectations because they were bottom of the ladder well they've won their three games outright uh, since and now they're in prime position to uh, go through to the final New South Wales will definitely be in the final so looking at the points table they've got 51 points with one game to go Victoria on 38 Queensland on 36 Tasmania on 32 well Victoria play Tasmania in the final round which uh, takes place this weekend so they play at the Junction Oval um, a home game against Tassie if they win that um, they'll they'll have their destiny in their own hands South Australia are hosting Queensland in their final game so Queensland will need to win away and Victoria to lose in order to go through Peter Siddle important as always 13 overs 3 for 27 won't go away Peter Siddle day November 25th it's coming up the campaign is in place make sure you write to your local MP and demand that it be a nationally recognised holiday in couple of the sort of off-Broadway series, but we should mention, because we touched on them the last week, Afghanistan are 2-0 up in their T20 series against Ireland in India. They won their first game on Duckworth-Lewis and their second pretty easily. Afghanistan are one of the 10 teams to automatically qualify for the T20 World Cup this year. Ireland are one of the six teams that we're going to pay more attention to at the very start mm. in that qualification tournament at, well, there's two of them, aren't there? There's one happening in Hobart and the other one happening in Geelong. We'll both be there. I'll be in Tassie. Jeff will be at the Cattery. 
uh, and Bangladesh swept uh, their uh, ODIs against Zimbabwe at home. They've got a couple of T20s to come at Dhaka. We should also mention, Jeff, in terms of stuff that's coming up, Australia uh, are playing or hosting rather New Zealand in in, a, in three one-day internationals starting later this week. Uh, two of them are in Sydney, where, as I mentioned before, it rains an awful lot in Sydney in March. So we'll see whether they go ahead. I put on Twitter during the week it might be the first one-day series ever played where they don't even flip the coin. Now, two in Sydney, then one in Hobart to round out the, <laughs> the men international summer. And would you believe then Australia then go back to New Zealand uh, for three T20s? So can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> Just the, the, the desperate hunger for men's bilateral white ball series <laughs> will not be sated. Ah, uh, well. Look, I think that's enough for this week. Uh, it's been the final word. If you would like to get involved with the show, remember to go to patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash the final word then you can help support the show then we can keep making it every week as we like to do and that's the only thing that makes it possible is your support and uh, the support as well from cbus super thanks to them and from satphoneshop.com if you want a phone that works off satellites instead of normal stupid networks that go down go and check them out uh, you can review the show rate the show on your podcast networks and that helps other people see it uh, thanks to bad producer who are our production company who make the show dc who edits it and cuts it together. And thank you to Adam for appearing on the show moments after being projectile shat on by a small human being. <laughs> still got still, still got some of the re- residual uh, product on, on, on my foot I saw a minute ago. So time to... Uh, oh, good. T- time to get changed. We're actually having our, our naming... Uh, what do they call it here? There's, there's, there's some formal word for when you get your birth certificate in the UK. So as soon as I'm finished here, um, I'm, ta- I'm putting on a shirt and tie, putting on a jacket and taking little Winnie and her mum uh, down to the uh, registration office to, uh, to to formally become a citizen. Can you just sneakily go Winifred Maxwell Collins? <laughs> just, just get it in this... You have no I mean, idea. It's... Jeff, you have no idea what would have happened in, in, the, in the alternate universe where we had a boy. Um, well, there were... There were, there were discussions had, put it that way. Who knows what yeah. might happen in the future? <laughs> Go for it. Go for round two. This has been the final word. Jeff Levin and Adam Collins. We'll see you next week. I had to go about